Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The U.S. Supreme Court just put out a ruling on a critical patent case in Cuso Speed Technologies versus Lee. The case addressed two important questions associated with the patent review process and how the United States Patent and Trademark Office would review patents that have already been granted. The court ruled in favor of the patent board on both questions. I'm Corey Dugas, and today we are joined by Professor Yvette Joy Liebesman, who teaches intellectual property law and has been following the case. Thanks for joining us today, Yvette. My pleasure. First, can you explain the basics of how disputes work in relation to this case? Okay, well, we're going to go back in history a little. And before uh, the American Vents Act was enacted back in 2011, the way you got a patent, and this is still mostly true, is if I was an inventor, I went to the patent office, usually through a patent attorney, Mm -hmm. and it was an ex parte communication, basically just me and the patent board. And we would negotiate, and I would say, these are the claims I want, and we would go back and forth, and they would grant me a patent. And if someone else came along and thought that, wait a minute, this patent shouldn't have been granted, the only ways they could get the patent pretty much you know, invalidated is, or a claim of the patent invalidated is if I sued them and they, as defense, they said, this claim never should have been invented, been granted, or... Um, they, if I threatened to sue them, they could file for a declaratory judgment in court, and we again go to court, very expensive. But then Congress enacted the America's Invent Act, mm-hmm. and that gave people who weren't the patent applicants two opportunities to challenge claims. One was after it was published, but before it was granted, and the second time was after it was granted. And what this case is about is uh, Garmin, uh, which... Garmin, like that, yeah, that made all the the technology that we use to navigate in our cars. Yes, and to run and to bike and your car and all those things. And they saw that Cuso had a patent on a speedometer, some fe- specific features of a speedometer. And they looked at it and said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, we don't think that some of these claims." in the patent should have been granted. And this was the post-grant review, and that's what that issue is the issue here, post-grant review based on what's called an IPR, an inter-parties review, meaning someone other than the patent, the patent holder and uh, the patent office is involved. So Garmin goes to the Patent and Trademark Office, specifically what's known as the uh, Patent Trials and Appeal Board, and says, hey, we think you should look over this patent, the specifically Claim 17 of this particular patent, because we have, with prior art, this stuff, Mm -hmm. that evidence that says you shouldn't have granted that particular claim. And the PTO looked at it and said, yeah, we really should look at this more carefully and do a review. And um, so the Congress, when they passed the law, said point blank that whether to institute this kind of review, an inter partes review, shall be final and non-appealable. And Cuso didn't like that. Mostly they didn't like that because they claim got invalidated, claim 17. And then on their own, when they looked at this, the PTAB uh, looked at it and said, wait a minute, we want to look at these other two claims too, numbers, I think, 10 and 14, and they were all invalidated. Based, and, and one that was so, first thing that Cuso didn't like was that they didn't get a chance to appeal this decision by the patent office to do the review. 
And then the second thing they didn't like was the standard that the patent office used to conduct their review. And that uh, review was conducted based on regulations that the patent office had passed um, after the law was passed. The law was passed. It gave the uh, rulemaking authority to the PTO to make rules to institute, to implement the these inter-parties review, these post-grant reviews, and that's what they did. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they decided we're going to look at it uh, based on what is known as the broadest reasonable construction. So we're going to look at this claim, and we're going to look at it, we're going to interpret it as broadly as possible and see when we interpret it really broadly, is it obvious? And that's what they were looking at here was obviousness. Was it obvious? What we mean by obvious is that... um, Anybody, you know, it, it would be apparent to anybody to do what they were doing. Even though it okay. was, was never done before, it wasn't a patent, it was never never invented before, anybody would think of doing this. So this is really obvious in what we think of on a day-to-day basis. Like, obvious to you, me, and everyone around us. I, it could be. It's the, um, it, it's, oftentimes we don't look at you, me, and everybody because if we're looking at something really complicated, you and I would look at it and our heads would explode. <laughs> yeah. uh, instead, they look at what is known, they usually look at a person called Fosita. And Fosita is the person having ordinary skill in the art. So if we're talking about a new kind of screwdriver, you and I could probably figure it out. If we're talking about a complex thing like a speedometer, a digital speedometer, maybe not us, but somebody mm-hmm. with the knowledge and background. Okay. So in this case, there were there were two different decisions that were made. Can you mm-hmm. explain a little bit about what those are? Sure, sure. First decision was had to do with what I was talking about, this idea of the non-appealability uh-huh. of the decision, not, not on the merits, but whether or not they're even going to look at it again. And uh, Cuso argued that, wait, we should be able to appeal that decision. Uh, and this, even though there is language that says whether to institute inter-parties review shall be final and non-appealable, we have this other cases out there that think that maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting, this is probably, I think this is the first case to make it all the way to the Supreme Court involving these inter-parties reviews. So this is new territory. And the court here basically said, you know, what do you think they meant when they said non-appealable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> non-appealable means, means non-appealable. non-appealable. Yeah. Yes. So what part of non-appealable did you not understand? And that's what they said. They said it's on its face. It's They said point blank. It's plain on its face. It's not appealable. This has nothing to do with the merits. This has to do with the PTO's decision to look at the patent again, mm-hmm. whether or not they're going to look at the patent again. And that means that if I bring information to the PTO and they say, eh, we don't feel like looking at it, we don't think this meets our merit, I can't appeal and say, wait, please, please look at it. Yeah. And on the other hand, the, the patent holder can't say, no, 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 we please, please, please change your mind, don't look at it. Neither one of us gets to appeal. Okay. And then the second thing is that the, the standards for review? Yeah. What they did is, that, like I said, they're looking at, um, a lot of this had to do, it, it's really almost an administrative law issue. It really has more to do with administrative law and the PTO's ability to write regulations and to interpret the law when it's ambiguous. So here we have a section of the law which is pretty ambiguous and Congress has given the PTO the ability to draft regulations 
based on their knowledge. And they are the experts in patents. Let them draft the knowledge, draft the patents. And that's actually very old Supreme Court um, um, precedent called Chevron deference that we give de- if you're interpreting your own regulations uh, and writing your own regulations based on this, then you get to interpret it and we're going to defer to you unless it is um, completely out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless it, it is not reasonable. So they're going to look at it and say, you know, if this is a reasonable interpretation, then, you know, and it's not, and it's within your purview, we're going to let it stand. Mm -hmm. And so what they were saying is that we're going to look at the broadest reasonable construction because we want to make sure you're not claiming too much. We want you to draft your claims narrowly because if you claim too much in this, you may be claiming things that you have no right to claim. And so unless we look at it broadly, this is what the PTO is saying, we have to look at this broadly because if we don't look at it broadly, then you may be claiming things you don't have the right to have. And we want you to draft your claims narrowly in order Mm -hmm. to avoid this because we're out here looking out for the public to make sure you're not claiming things you don't have a right to because you're getting a monopoly and you're preventing other people from practicing these inventions. Absolutely. So in this sort of situation, who stands to benefit the most from this ruling? Well, um, basically... um, I think it's going to benefit uh, people who, in the past, uh, had no way to challenge a patent other Mm -hmm. than to wait to be sued or file a declaratory judgment, both of which are very expensive. Mm -hmm. It gives us other avenue. So the small guy who maybe has already gotten a cease and desist letter and been threatened, they can instead file for an inter partes review or if they're looking things over. So... It, it it really it benefits folks who in the past would have been sued on overly broad patents. So you mentioned the small guy. Will this mm-hmm. um, help or harm small businesses, do you think, in the end? I think in the end it'll help small businesses because we have, for a long time we had, uh, we still have, we have a lot of bad patents that were issued and very weak claims and companies were going around and demanding licenses and threatening to sue on very weak patents and you had a choice you could either cave in and pay Mm -hmm. or you could be sued and maybe win and get it invalidated that way and it gives this third avenue and if you notice the case remember Garmin was the ones who brought the inter partes review but Garmin's not mentioned here this is the patent owner Mm -hmm. Cuso and Lee who is Michelle Lee who runs the patent office Um, so those are the two parties involved here the patent office and uh, the patent owner so it's basically, you know, it's kind of like the difference between filing a civil suit and a criminal suit, uh-huh. you know, whether who has to pay for the... <laughs> so the <laughs> company pays, that came yes. in there is is no longer even involved in Correct. what's going on. Correct. Garmin's not involved here. This is between the patent owner and the PTO. So you mentioned earlier very mm-hmm. strongly about the, the lack of appealability mm-hmm. in this. So if, if patent owners can't go to court to challenge a reviews board decision, what kind of options do they have? Well, this doesn't do that. Um, What this does is it says that that initial decision to do the review Mm -hmm. is not appealable. It's got nothing to do with the merits. Mm -hmm. So this has to do with should the patent office review? And if they say yes or if they say no, 
that is the decision that is not appealable. Not whether, not, not the final decision that they reach on the merits. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with the PTO deciding, yes, we are going to review this patent. Okay, so, so yeah. there's still plenty they can appeal, just yes. not that review. Okay, exactly. thanks for clearing that up for us. Not the decision to make the review. Okay, <laughs> even more clear. Um, how do you think that this decision is going to change patent law? Oh, it depends who you read. There's the doomsday predictors on one side who say that, oh my goodness, patent owners are in horrible shape now because they can't, don't have this avenue to appeal and that it's too broad and now all patents are going to be invalid and the, you know, you know, chickens are going to fall from the sky and horrible things are going to happen. <laughs> uh, so there's the, obviously the folks who um, have a lot of very weak patents who like to just go out and try to get licenses and threaten people are mm -hmm. not happy if someone if they uh, if, if someone else has to um, basically if the person they're suing doesn't have to pay to go through the process of getting the patent invalidated that the PTO now can step in and say wait we shouldn't have granted this patent it's too broad and, and the patent office is a tough job I mean there's a lot of things out there and they are very limited uh, in their resources so they may be unaware of what's known as the prior art of things out there that would affect their decision on the patent so having other folks out there um, who can come up with stuff mm -hmm. uh, to basically say, hey, PTO, look at this stuff here. You may, you may be interested in this. Mm -hmm. You may be interested in this stuff with regard to this particular patent. So it gives them more eyes out there. It gives them a lot more eyes. A very interesting business that has popped up is there are companies that will pay uh, a reward if you find prior art to invalidate patents that they want invalidated. Oh, so that's a little research gig on the side that you could have looking for this. I know somebody <laughs> who pays for his his summer vacations every year by finding these. Okay, great part-time <laughs> job right there. Yeah, so. so you know he goes online and he goes hunting and he will find something that will in you know either mm -hmm. for the at the uh, either stage or at the um, a pre-grant stage when it's been published and you have the chance to you know kind of, you know do with mm -hmm. that at that time or post-grant and yeah there's you know all sorts of uh, you know opportunities out there for people who want to mm -hmm. find you know in things that will invalidate patents um, and it, it's uh, I think it'll I think it strengthens the patents uh, that are out there because we don't want patents issued for things that aren't uh, novel and non-obvious and anticipate or things that aren't new things that aren't um, um, things that are anticipated meaning they're not new and things that are not useful we want the patent office to issue good patents and this helps them issue good patents well, that's great to hear. Thank you so much for joining us today, Yvette. It's, it's been a great time talking to you about this and been very interesting and informative on what's going on in patent law. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.